Hello and welcome everyone back to episode 10 of Immunology and Beyond. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Bernice Simbarabindi, who is currently a senior scientific researcher at Genentech in California. So just a brief background about Dr. Mbirabindi. So she completed her master's degree at Université Pierre et Marie Curie in Paris. After that, she completed her PhD at the University of Southampton. Then she continued at Stanford for her postdoctoral position, and after started a position at Genentech as a senior scientific researcher focused on immunotherapies for the treatment of cancer. So in this episode, she shows us her love for NK cells and also explains to us a little bit about her journey through academia and advice and tips that she learned along the way. With that, we would like to welcome Dr. Mbirabindi. Thank you for being here today. Uh, just to start off the episode, I think it'd be really cool for our listeners if they could get a little bit of a summary or take us to your path through academia and starting from your BSc, you know, where you were in Paris to so now where you are today. Hi, uh, thank you very much for having me today. I'm extremely excited to be uh, sharing some of my experience with everyone in during this podcast. So my um, trajectory in science, well, when I started university, I went to med school and I was trying to kind of become a doctor, <laughs> physician. And I don't know if you guys know about uh, the system in France, but it's kind of there is a huge challenge that Steve, uh, all the candidates. And unfortunately, I didn't like pass through. But um, I had pretty good grades, so there was, they just suggested me to go straight to the final year of the bachelor's degree. So that's what I did, and I uh, focused on life sciences and biomedical sciences. And then I felt like just doing a master's degree was kind of the, I would say, the normal follow-up after the bachelor's degree, uh, just to go into depth about the type of science I wanted to do. But also I was kind of unsure about what I really wanted to do after my bachelor's degree. I knew I didn't want to go straight on the work, on the uh, work market, but I, I wanted to have more uh, experience, lab experience especially. So I went on, did my master's degree. And after that, um, it was kind of natural to just <laughs> do a PhD. When you do your master's degree, you also get to uh, interact with PhD students and see them in the lab and developing their projects. And I was kind of excited about this aspect of science, you know, just having your own questions and doing a bunch of things to answer those questions and explore. So I thought the PhD was kind of a good idea. A good idea. And then after the PhD, I got I got a postdoc and uh, at Stanford in uh, in California. And then that where kind of everything changed. And I left academia to now uh, work at Genentech, which is uh, one of the first biotech companies in the Bay Area. So yeah. So yeah, it sounds like there's a lot there to look forward to, to talk about. Um, to start kind of things off, you mentioned that you you know you saw Masters as kind of the, the next thing after completing your BSc. Uh, did, during your BSc, did you do any research or was it master's the first time that you had your exposure to any sort of research? Yeah, so during the master's degree, that that, that actually was the first time I was uh, able to go to lab. So there is, so at the time, actually, I kind of changed university as well. So I went to Pierre and Marie Curie. So I did my bachelor's degree at uh, Paris Descartes. And then this was pure uh, science. You just go, um, you just go to the lecture theaters and you just, you know, 
write, 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 and then you have the, the exams and then you have your grade and that's it. We didn't really have any exposure to a lab, except maybe the practical lab where you, you know, you do those like little experiments, physiology experiments with the frogs and things like that. Yeah. Or if you do, because actually my bachelor's degree was kind of really... I would say broad. I did biochemistry, I did physiology, I did biology, chemistry, physics, and I was doing like lab, kind of small lab work there. Uh, but the real, uh, I would say, the real experience in terms of being in lab and doing science was during my master's degree, where I decided to now focus on immunology and just do everything related to that. And, you know, you said that you had a very diverse experience. You know, you got to see physics, biochemistry, it seems like you got to be exposed to a lot of different fields. And what kind of drew you to be, okay, I'm going to come into two years of immunology research, you know? What was the thing that kind of bought you that this was the right decision? So I remember uh, it was one of, so one of the biology uh, classes was actually divided into small uh, modules where one of them, it was just like introduction to immunology. I remember I went to uh, to the class and professor, her name is Katrin Friedman. I don't know if she's still teaching there, but she started talking about the immune system and she was so passionate about it. And I mean, she was just describing it uh, in their broad function, you know, uh, defense, uh, host defense against uh, viruses, bacteria, I mean, pathogen in general. And then I was kind of drawn to that. So after the class, I went to see her and I asked her, like, how to study immunology? And then she told me about the different universities and kind of the, the path into getting to, in, into that field in depth. And then we talked more about different, you know, type of way you can be involved. And she was the one telling me about the fact that you can do a six-month internship during your first year of master's degree and yeah, I think that's how I kind of chose it. It was really not not by chance, but it was just she was so compelling, you know, with all the explanations and the introduction to that field. So, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I, you hear that a lot, that people get into science or the field they get into. Not, sometimes it's because of the, the science itself, but some, yeah. a lot of times it comes down to like a mentor that's very passionate about it. Yeah, so. you need someone to attract you. And I have to say, though, that's the same way. I kind of got into studying NK cells because when I first started immunology, I was, I, I wanted to work on T cells, B cells, you know, the, the stars of the immune system. But then there is this other side, which it's kind of not talked about when you talked about the immune system to young students, you know, and I met uh, my, um, my then to be a PhD advisor, but I met him during an internship and he was working on natural killer cells. Yes. Um, that was uh, my introduction to immunology and, the attraction. Nice. So in terms of your, I feel like kind of dive a little more into the research that you've done. If you can share with us a little bit of like what questions you were trying to answer during your master's thesis, what were the findings and what were you looking at and why was that important? During my master's thesis, I was focusing on the role of a small subset of T-cells called TH17 CD4 T-cells. And it was in the context of HIV infection. And uh, especially in the gut where they're, they're really abundant and they kind of, you know, they're the one that are infected by the virus. But uh, the question was how do cells develop into the gut uh, in, in general under the influence of a B cell factor called BAF. And actually those, that, that factor was shown to induce 
TH17 orientation of naive T cells, which then will actually give, especially into the guts, a lot of target for the virus to infect and replicate and cause even a worse infection into the people who are infected. So kind of during the master degree, the goal was to understand the mechanism of action and how that factor produced by B cells was actually driving the orientation of those naive T cells into TH17 T cells. So it was a lot of tissue culture work, a lot of uh, flow cytometry analysis. It was pretty, it was pretty intense, but it was really good. Were you able to discern the mechanism in terms of how it worked in the end? Yeah, so we started dissecting that and seeing that mean actually uh, that, that that factor were also stimulating some of the APCs, so uh, macrophages and dendritic cells, in terms of making them secreting uh, cytokines that actually was driving that orientation of those naive T cells into TS17. So that kind of was the mechanism of action. Nice. It sounds very, very interesting. You kind of looked at the whole immune system then when you were d- discerning this mechanism, right? Because you said you, you had T cells involved, and I think you mentioned that B cells were the ones secreting yeah. it. And then at one point you had APCs involved. So you, it seems like you got a good exposure to the whole immune system. Yes. And then after that, you decided, oh, NK cells. And that's where you, when you decided to go into your PhD, right? Yes. And no, I think, so the way actually I, um, I, I got to know NK cells was in the time where, uh, I don't know if you guys know, but in France, a master's degree lasts two years. So the first year, it's kind of the year where you explore first the lab and in what type of field you want to be uh, a professional in, I will say. Like, where do you want to specialize yourself? Um, so me, it was immunology. And then on the second year, you kind of build uh, a, a project because then te- technically you are intending to go and do your PhD. So in France, you can't do a PhD if you don't have your master's degree. But then it's all about the selection, you know, when you go from the first year to the second year. So to get accepted to the program that you want, you have to show that you are the strongest candidate. And one of the ways that I found to kind of dissociate myself to everybody was to go abroad and do an internship, a summer internship. I contacted a lot of uh, labs, especially in, uh, in the U.S., but also in, in England. Because I also wanted to, one, learn new techniques, but also start learning English. And what's better than getting immersed into the environment, you know? (laughs) So I had an answer from Professor Salim Kaku. And at the time, he was at Imperial College in London. And that's where I went to do my internship. And he was working on NK cells in uh, liver diseases and especially in hepatitis infection. And I learned new techniques and I discovered NK cells. I have to say, during my first year of master's degree, we barely talked about them. It was kind of, the immune system is divided in two different families, innate and um, and adaptive. And then you have like the name of macrophages and blah, 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 NK cells in the innate. And then they go more in depth about the adaptive immune system. They talk about T cells, they talk about B cells in, you know, really in depth. And then you barely get to hear about the others. I went there and I was like, oh, okay, there is a cell that kills. They look like T-cells, but they're not T-cells. And then you just start to like, listen to people talking about NK cells and looking at data and looking at their functions. And it was so fascinating to see that those cells, they are, you know, they are barely present uh, in the blood, but they do so much. So, yeah, it was very interesting. And also the different receptors that they do express that are pretty confusing, but 
again, still interesting. Yeah, I, I believe uh, Anna and I feel the same way sometimes when we go to cancer immunotherapy conferences where it's very much T-cells are, you know, the, the future <laughs> and they have, a, they have a good foundation within that, yeah. that, that field for them. And when you talk about NK cells, they're like, oh, those are innate immune cells. Yeah. <laughs> those are the viral side. They're not that cool. So yeah. Yeah, hopefully we see in the future NK cells kind of developing a more, a bigger foundation and a bigger I mean, theme within cancer immunotherapy. Yeah, I remember when I first started to do science, people were all about, oh, NK cells. But now people are putting them kind of in the middle. They don't really know. Are they really innate? But they do some adaptive stuff too. So we don't really know. We need to change these things, you know? And also everybody was about CAR T cells. It's still about CAR T cells, but you have this field coming up about CAR NKs, which kills better and which are, you know, people who are treated uh, with CAR NKs have a better remission. So now this field is booming. People want to use NK cells in immunotherapy. Now the field is kind of like, well, but how long do they persist in the body? Like, it's super exciting, but definitely still a lot of work to do in terms of homing and persistence. But mm -hmm. I'm very excited to see where, where this leads. Yeah. And also, I feel like with NK cells, there is so much unknown that we don't have... I don't want to be insulting about uh, T cells and people who study T cells, but I feel like now they are, they try to, you know, define subset that honestly, I wonder if they really exist. You know, it's just, oh, let's dig into this and create this subset. And I'm like, really? On a, personally, I feel like if you are a young scientist and you want to do research and, you know, just use these classical techniques and investigate it in, in immune cell and find more information about the cell, I think NK cells is the right candidate. It's already complicated by itself and there is still a lot to do about those cells and to find that you don't have to go and start inventing subsets. Yeah, I agree. So I feel I feel like we've really built a good foundation to, uh, you know, get us excited about talking now your PhD that's very much involved with NK cells. So if we can get a little more information about the research that you did during your PhD, I know that a lot of it focused on inhibitory receptors and the role in terms of regulating mm -hmm. NK cell function. Yes. Um, so when I joined the lab, <laughs> I had four different projects, but there were one of them that was for me, honestly, was, and th that's the one actually that was published, I think two years ago, that was the most interesting one I felt like. So it was about peptide antagonism mechanism and how you can trigger NK cell activation by changing the peptide repertoire of a given MHC class one molecule. So let me dissect that. I want to start by explaining how NK cells usually sense differences in terms of class one expression and target cell. So all our cells, our somatic cells express class one molecules and NK cells, when they patrol our body, they actually um, can assess the level of those class one molecule on the cell surface. And that level of expression inhibit NK cells. So it kind of put them to sleep. But when you have a cell that is becoming uh, a cancerous cells or it's infected by uh, a virus, sometimes you have a down regulation of that ligand. So the class one is, is decreased at the cell surface and that's where NK cells know that the cells is not normal anymore and get rid of it. But what happened is that in some cancer or some viral infection, there is actually the cell will keep a good level of the class one at the cell surface. And this is mainly because it tried to escape the killing from NK cells. But during this phenomenon of trying to keep the class one expression level high on the cell, 
there is change in, into the peptide that those class one are carrying. So some of those changes can actually tickle NK cells to kill the target cell because the NK cell would be like, wait a minute, okay, you have class one, but actually that peptide isn't the right one. Boom, killing. And then what I was doing during my PhD was to kind of find what type of changes induce NK cell killing. So changes in the amino acid sequence that will tell the NK cell that the cell is not normal and then it will attack it. And then you can basically try to mix those peptides that have variation with peptides that are known to induce NK cell inhibition, so to put NK cells to sleep, and see that the NK cell will still be able to say that there is the wrong peptide onto those cells. And that was kind of peptide, the peptide antagonism phenomenon. So I, uh, during my PhD, I, I generalized that phenomenon to different class one, but also uh, we did some mathematical modeling to see that th that effect was really driven by the way the receptors and the ligand was getting organized at the cell surface in that synapse where NK cells and target cell are meeting together. It was a lot of work, I have to say. I have, a, I have two questions that I kind of thought about. Mm -hmm. One is that when these cells that express MHC are being targeted by NK cells, when they have a peptide and then mm -hmm. that, that the cell, the NK cell doesn't recognize, it's be is it because the inhibitory receptor in the NK cell is not being activated or is it, it goes a step further and it's actually acting as an activator? So, so he, I think, so it, it doesn't act like an activating receptor. It's actually all about everything comes back to the balance. Uh, so we know that NK cell works mainly uh, through the fact that they receive signals from activating and inhibitory uh, signals. Usually when you have a normal cell, the balance goes towards inhibition. So what actually the peptide is doing is that it's not allowing the interaction between the ligand and the receptor. So then you understand that the balance will then go toward activation. So the receptor is like acting kind of like, I won't say that it was not there, but it doesn't recognize its ligand. So it's it's flipping the balance towards activation. I don't know if that was clear. Yeah, no, that was very clear. Okay. Um, and then I have my follow-up question is, did you find a similarity? I know you did a lot of mathematical modeling. In conclusion, did you guys find that there were specific peptides that belonged to a family or if that were the ones that were not recognized by the inhibitory uh, receptor on NK cells? So what we found was that you can, so we were mainly focusing on uh, HLAC, which is one of the class one molecule. And HLAC, it's divided in two different groups of uh, class one. So there is HLAC group one and HLAC group two. And then within one group, there is several alleles. So we first uh, did the work on one allele, and then you have to screen a lot of peptides. So we screened a bunch of peptides for that, and then we did it on the second allele, and then we screened also a bunch of peptides for that as well. And then we found kind of, there were slight differences when you looked at the different alleles, but in terms of which modification you are putting into the peptide sequence, but overall the effect was the same, that you can still have this antagonism phenomenon happening when you look at the HLAC peptide complex, with its care and care receptor of interest. So it was the care. Thank you for that wonderful explanation of, you know, the, the research into care receptors. I, I never knew that. I always thought it was a end all, you know, if there's a care receptor there, it's not going to be targeted. So it's good to know <laughs> that not all harmful cells are going to get away, even if they express the, the MHC complex. The question that I had was that, and I found this very interesting, and it kind of relates back to the question that we we're talking about of, you know, T cells 
and get and B cells get all the interest because you know vaccines and cancer treatment. But I saw that you at one point you were working on the possibility of an NK cell therapy that works around vaccines, especially to target、uh, I think cancer cells. If you can talk to us a little more about that research and just share it with our audience, because I feel it's not something that a lot of people see in the literature. Yeah, that idea kind of relies on the fact that NK cells they. That talks to different immune cells, and especially that they talk to APCs and they talk to T cells, and we know that T cells are really important into like kind of getting into that cascade of the vaccine response, right? So it it was more about finding a peptide that can be presented by an APC. Let's say, for instance, you have a, a cancer cell, you study its peptidome. And then the peptidome will tell you which kind of peptide will trigger NK cell activation, and then、uh, you can use that to basically train NK cells to trigger that cascade that will give you a strong immune re- response against that specific、uh, cancer cell line, for instance. So the idea here is to kind of use the peptide and allow NK cells to do the efficient crosstalk, so then you have a good immune response towards、uh, a given cancer. And in terms of the research so far, it's very preliminary still. You know, try from what I saw from the paper,、uh, and I assume within the field. Yes, it is.、Uh, it's it's really preliminary because I think with NK cells, the thing that is more、uh, complicating to grasp is the fact that they express、uh, tons of different receptors. They're not like T cells where you have、uh, you do a clonal expansion and they also they they express one type of receptor and then that receptor recognizes. Uh, a given ligand, and then you know you have your specific response. So with NK cells, is I feel like it's more complicated because they have all these receptors, and then you look at the target cells, and they have all these ligands. You know, so you really have to pinpoint which、uh, receptor ligand interaction will actually give you the strongest signal, so then you can have the effect you are looking for.、Uh, and I feel like many people actually right now are now working on the therapeutics using NK cells, maybe not in a vaccine strategy, but、uh, in a way where. Like you tickle them basically to have a strong response and a sustained、uh, collaboration with the other immune cells. Well, it looks like there's a lot of exciting stuff coming from NK cells.、Mm-hmm. I feel like this whole <laughs> podcast is just an advertisement for NK cell research. Oh yeah, privilege to work on NK cells. It's so fun. <laughs> Kind of conclude, you know, your research and your PhD, moving、mm-hmm. a little bit away from the science and just thinking about a little more in the personal sense.、Uh, what were some of like the greatest le- lessons that you kind of learned from going through that PhD experience that you think would be important for people that are currently doing their PhD or are thinking about doing it for them to know? I think there is three great lessons I've learned. So I think doing the PhD made me kind of really resilient.、Uh, so resilience. I got really, really organized after I went into、uh, the PhD, and then the last one, I think, I learned about professional and scientific integrity. My、uh, PhD advisor taught me a lot, I would say, and the way I do my experiments, the way I interact with other scientists, I think I all learned it from him. The way I like to build collaborations as well,、uh, it always said that you know science is very difficult and. We have a big communities because we need to, you know, help each other. So he told me actually how to kind of create collaborations with other scientists in the field, or even some of the people that outside of the field that will, you know, ask you questions, and I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, this may be a stupid question, but and then they make you realize like, oh no, 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 actually you're right. Let's think about this point, and then you know, you kind of get to develop. I don't know how to explain it, but basically just to grow as a scientist. So yeah. Yeah, no, I agree specifically with like a lot of that. And specific, the last point, I find that a lot of times when you are within a field, there's always the、mm. exact same way of of tackling a question. And then when、mm. you when you go beyond.
beyond that, there yeah. is a lot of great ideas. So I, I definitely, that resonates with me a lot as well. So I guess we're going to talk a little bit about some reflections on your PhD, going to different countries, first of all, and also studying different things. In your PhD, what were some of the best moments that you had? Let me put it in the order. I think meeting my fellow PhD students that, I mean, we became friends and I'm pretty sure like if we have the possibility, we will be collaborating as well. We always support each other because we all remember what we went through. Not that it was so uh, dramatic and traumatic, but you know, PhD is kind of, a PhD is, it's really draining. And I think you need a good support system. Your family can be one, but I feel like your cohort really understands you. You know, you can tell them, oh, my my blood was like all blurry and smudgy. And then you cannot, you can, I mean, you can, if, your, if your family is into that field, they may understand, but if they're not, they'll be like, what, what is it talking about? What, you know? And then you show them the picture and they're like, what's the drama? <laughs> Uh, but then you can talk to your friends and they will they will understand you. I think, yeah, so meeting uh, my cohort was one of the great experiences. Um, I'm still friends with, as I was saying, with uh, some of them, but also traveling. So I, I really like to travel and I feel like conferences were uh, the best the best way to do it as a student. You know, I got to go to different countries, especially, I mean, mainly in Europe and meet other scientists from other countries. That was one of the highlights of my PhD as well. Yeah, I think a lot of people can resonate with that. Well, not so much now, COVID, but... Um, yeah. Before that, being able to go to conferences in different places. and I do, you. I do feel bad for them because in England, for instance, the PhD lasts three years, at least already two years uh, in quarantine. So, oh, yes, I feel really bad for those students. Yeah, that's definitely one of the down or some of the downsides to it. So, But with that, on the other side of the coin, what were some of the hardships that you faced? during your PhD and if you have any advice? Yeah, I think oof, the hardship, I guess, financially, kind of get reorganized, well organized with your money in terms of, you know, uh, supporting yourself, the rent and everything. I think like PhD students have stipends that's, you know, it's something, but it's not a lot, you know, when you live abroad or you, when you don't live at your parents, for instance. The other thing, it's more lab related. I thought that you would get to lab, then you have a question, then you use the protocol and boom, you have your answer, you know? No, it was a lot of trials, you know, get the protocol to work, make sure you have the right controls. Yeah, so get ready to accept failure. I think that the, that is the, uh, the other advice. And I think being open to criticism as well. I know some people, you will tell them that they're not doing it properly and they will take it really personally. And I don't think that's the way, you know, people can move forward. Yeah, I think just like taking criticism make you grow and make you even a better scientist. Yeah, just not feeling attacked, but feeling like people want you to do good. I don't know if that makes sense. No, yeah, that makes sense. Like criticism is not personal, really. Yeah, like I guess a lot of people can resonate with that, especially transitioning from undergrad into grad school. You're more one-on-one -on -one with a senior scientist. So yeah. it's kind of jarring at first, but it's not a bad thing. Also, do you have any advice for undergrad students who are thinking of transitioning into a PhD? I would say have have a specific interest, I will say. For instance, if you like to study infectious diseases, if you think you prefer to study cancer immunology, if you want to be a bioinformatician, you know, have at least an idea of like what you want to do. And then not choose the right place, but try to choose the place where you can, for instance, do rotations. You know, I know that in my university, students used to do rotations to check different labs and settle on the one that 
they really think they will, you know, prosper. And I think like doing that is a good, it's a, it's a really good idea. And also I think, I don't know, but like get ready for like a move. I know many people like to stay at home, like near home or at, right now. I think it was actually a good choice to do that because now I feel very homesick because I'm far away. But yeah, be a bit more adventurous. Go far, far away if you can. Thanks for that advice. And now we're going to start moving on into a bit of your postdoctoral experience. So after completing your PhD, what drew you to stay within academia and pursue a postdoc? Yeah, so I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to be a team leader and have my own uh, lab working on natural killer cells. And yeah, I really wanted to be like my PhD uh, supervisor. He was a great PI. He's a great PI. So obviously I felt like I needed more paper. I need to have a strong uh, scientific uh, background. And also I wanted to learn new techniques. You know, the immunology field is moving so fast. I mean, I didn't realize that first, but, you know, from my PhD to my postdocs, things have changed so much. The technology have changed. The way people look at the data have changed. So taking all of that into account, I thought that the postdoc was, I mean, the right way to go. Plus, I don't think you'll be a professor if you don't do a postdoc (laughs) or two. You know, publish papers and make contacts, you know. Um, so yeah, that was the thing that drew me to do a postdoc because I was building myself into being a team leader. And also in line with that, you mentioned a little briefly, why did you continue to study NK cells in your postdoc? Because uh, I felt like there was still a lot to learn, but I also did kind of a strategy move. Uh, I moved to a new country and I moved into a new field. So I, I went from, you know, studying uh, NK cells, like pure NK biology and you know, looking at their different receptor to now NK cells in uh, the context of transplantation and, and viral infection. So I wanted to push my knowledge about NK cells slightly further. And yeah, so my postdoc had to be on NK cells. Plus I'm kind of obsessed about those cells. So yeah, uh, I, I don't think there were another type of cells I wanted to study. I was NK cells or nothing. No, <laughs> I, I, I was open to all those things. Yeah, I was looking mainly to it for uh, NK lab. And also the other thing was, as I was saying before, learn a new aspect of NK biology, but also learn new techniques. And that's why I thought that Stanford will be a good place to do it. So what particularly about Stanford and learning the new techniques drew you to that university or to that lab? So, okay. The first thing was that my PhD supervisor did his postdoc at Stanford. And he was all about Stanford, telling me about, you know, his time at Stanford. So I was kind of slightly biased already. And then he talked about the Bay Area and everything. So I was like, yeah, I think I want to go to Stanford. Mm, California sounds good. Yeah, I want to go to the U.S. And then, uh, as I was saying before, you know, the technology is changing. The fields, it's like rapidly changing. And Stanford uh, was one of the universities, when I think about this aspect of science, Stanford comes to my mind into a university that can actually capture those changes and implement them and teach them to the students. So then I was thinking that, yeah, Stanford would be the place I will go and I will uh, carry on standing uh, natural killer cells. But also there are this development of that technology called CITOF. So CITOF is, I would say, uh, now the big sister of losatometry. I think with Cytof, you can do more than what you can do with Flow. And if you want to do an ex- exploratory study, using Cytof was the way to go. And I, and I wanted to study NK cells in the tissue and specifically in the liver. So the lab I joined was offering doing that using Cytof. And I was like, okay, I'll go and do it. Then. And then I applied to that to that postdoc. 
So you mentioned a little bit about using Cytoff to learn more about NK cells. So what specifically were you working on at your time at Stanford? So we were working on kind of investigating the diversity of NK cells within the liver. Uh, when I say diversity is, is uh, the composition of the different subsets. And the reason why is because, you know, the liver is this like really tolerogenic organ and it's enriched with those killer cells that, you know, they're ready to kill. And those cells within that organ are sub subject to antigens that come from the portal vein and, and go through the liver and everything. They are subject to stress, you know, when students spend the weekend drinking. But, you know, the, the liver can handle it and keep its integrity. So the reason was to understand why, not that why that was happening, but how that was happening despite all those challenges that the liver was under. And yeah, so looking at NK cell diversity, people think that can be the key of answering that question. So what do you think are some of the applications of your research? So the site of project was one of my projects, uh, and I um, actually published this paper about EBV peptide, so Epstein-Barr virus peptide that can trigger NK cell activation. And again, the same way of like looking at inhibitor receptor during my PhD, I was also looking at the inhibitor receptor uh, here, but another type of inhibitor receptor, which were uh, NKG2A. And the reason why was because before I joined the lab, uh, one of the postdocs who uh, was there before me, she was working on looking at immune response to EBV latently infected cells. So usually people think about T-cell response, you know, but what she found was that there were this subset of NK cell that was actually attacking those cells. And when she looked at it, she found that they were mainly expressing this inhibitor receptor. So it was like really weird, you know, uh, because when she looked at the ligand, you remember earlier I was talking about, you know, interaction between inhibitor receptors on the NK cells and the ligand on the target cells. And technically she put the NK cells to sleep, but that wasn't happening. So they published that work and I write that work. And when I joined the lab, I was saying to my PI, oh, I would like to understand what is the mechanism of action that uh, is leading to this phenomenon. And again, I went back to uh, my first love, the peptide, because it's all about the peptide. So I went back to the peptide and uh, I was wondering if the, the virus itself had peptide that can be shown at the cell surface and will kind of trigger NK cell activation. So I did some work and I did some screening and I found that there were actually a pool of peptide that come from the virus that are able to attack those infected cells. So now I think you said to me the application of that research. Well, I think the focus uh, on those, first of all, I think it does highlight that this subpopulation can actually uh, do the job. And also maybe people can try to use that, that subset of cells in terms of developing therapeutic based on natural killer cells to go and take care of malignant cells that are infected with EBV uh, or just EBV infected cells. That's really interesting how you still took your research or your research from your PhD into your postdoc and what you were mentioning, the main goal of continuing your studies of NK cells was to push your knowledge further. So yeah, I think that's really interesting how you're able to carry that over. Yeah, I kind of felt like it was my, uh, I would say, safety net, you know, in quotes, because, uh, you know, you, I feel like when you do a postdoc, you need a project that is kind of new for you, completely new, so you can learn new things about a given cell type. But you also need a project where you know that you have the skills and you will, you know, you will move forward 
quickly because I think it can be pretty depressing when you know nothing is working in the lab and you are spending time and time and it's you know it's uh, it it can be frustrating. So yeah, it was this is also was one of my strategy actually. In line with that, so for students who are at the end of their PhD and are thinking of transitioning into a postdoctoral position, what advice would you give to them and what have you learned throughout your postdoc? Well, I would say, honestly, I would say have having a plan. So when you're going to a postdoc, a postdoc is it's really draining. Compared, I mean, the PhD is also draining, but the postdoc, I feel like it's it's even more draining because you, on top of the, like, the bench work, if you have a bench scientist, you also have to write, you have to mentor students usually if you want but it's always good to mentor students because you start kind of teaching as well and so I think like yes having a plan why do you want to do a postdoc what's your end goal and that can help choose the type of product you want to do the length so some people do like six years some people do two years and also I think have a plan and a goal actually that's our the main advice I will I will give but also maybe thinking about what you can take to your postdoc that you already know because that can be really helpful especially for the time where, you know, nothing is working. Uh, I had a really, like, hard time, you know, getting into that type of project. It was really uh, time-consuming. I had to read a lot about that, build the panel, and do all these things. Was And then you do exper- some experiment, and then it's, some of them fail. So you have to kind of, you know, have another project where you know that you are mastering the technique and you can move forward. You don't have to do exactly the same thing that you've done during your PhD, but... I feel like having something that kind of can you can rely on, uh, it's really important. Yeah, I think that's some really good advice in terms of even just an, at any level in terms of when you're mm. going to start anything, make sure mm. you have some kind of goal in mind and a kind mm. of a plan so that you can tailor yeah. your experience to that. And yeah, like you mentioned, plans change and things kind of come up serendipitously, but it's always good. Yeah. I think like coming back to what you just said, I think also, you know, being comfortable of like changing your plans too. You can have a plan and goals, but you need to be comfortable that it it won't certainly be like just a straight line and you may have to take, you know, a little detour or go elsewhere. Thanks so much for that advice. So now we're going to move over to Anna and she's going to ask you a couple of questions about the industry experience. So yeah, the next set of questions we wanted to touch on, um, it's kind of related to what you had just said about being open-minded and trying to figure out different paths and not limiting yourself to just Mm -hmm. one thing. Could you touch on what your decision was or why you made this decision to move into industry? As you did mention that you started your postdoc, you wanted to start your own lab, but now you're working as a full-time senior scientific researcher at Genentech. Yeah, so I came here to do a postdoc. I went to the academia, but again, plan changed. I got, I mean, I'm in the Silicon Valley, right? So I got to touch on different aspects of science outside of, of academia, so outside of a lab. I did some consulting for a VC company. I went to to different, like, startups. So I have to say here in the Bay Area, academia and industry, they're kind of, they go like sisters, there is no really this distinction that you can have in some cities where you better know that there is a company down the road, you know. Here, everything, it's kind of, I would say it's kind of mixed. So that way I kind of, I was able to put my, not that my foot in there, but like I was able to touch on that and I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, that's super interesting that you mentioned that different parts of the world kind of function differently in terms of academia and industry. Yeah. Um, definitely where we are in Canada, it's 
it feels like it's more separate. You don't really see it's rare or it's less. You see less where like PIs can launch their own companies. And I feel like oh, yeah. in, in the Bay Area, that's so much more prevalent. Yeah, here, even students, you know, they were like, uh, I went to uh, someone else's uh, def- thesis defense and you would see that, you know, they're already creating their own startup, their own company, and they are recruiting. And I'm like, wow. And so do you think that just being aware of these things made it makes it easier for people to make that transition, researchers within academia, just being around that type of environment? Yes. And I think it made the choice like more, I would say, not easier, but like it was kind of an obvious choice at one point for me. I have to say when I was back in Europe, like I wouldn't have thought about changing. For me, it was just academia. I want to be a professor. And then when I came to the barrier and I started doing all these things on top of my postdoc work, I started to do some consulting and I started to go and like work with few startups. And I just realized that, oh yeah, actually, you know, you can still, you can actually do kind of not the same type of science, but you can still do good science by moving to our industry and, you know, interesting science as well. I'm interested to uh, hear a little bit more about your consulting. Was that something that you, I guess, like marketed yourself towards? Like how did you, what was the reasoning behind doing consulting? So uh, I actually went to like a seminar where there were, it was a career, a career panel and it was a career panel based on people who actually left academia but wanted to do some science and the way they apply their knowledge and what they know about science was to do some consulting and they were working with uh, venture capitalists that wanted to invest into startups and what they do they basically what they basically do is some due diligence and making sure that uh, the startups that the venture capitals wanted to uh, put their money in we're actually we're actually doing pretty great science or robust science, you know. So then I went to that character and then, you know, I was like, oh, okay, so actually you can do this kind of, you know, things with your knowledge. But to do due diligence and some consulting, you have to be trained for it because it's okay, you use your skills and your knowledge, but it's in a different way because you have to be able to explain uh, experiments, results uh, to people who are not scientists, you know. So this is also training that, you know, I kind of had to follow. And I did my uh, intern, actually I did a long internship with a, a company here that is called BCBA and that stands for Biotech Connection Bay Area. And that company kind of bring together students, postdocs, uh, physicians from three universities. So Berkeley, Stanford and uh, UCSF. And then we kind of like um, organize ourselves in groups and, and we work on different projects. And then they help you like learn about how to do good due diligence for a venture capitalist. That's super cool that yeah. um, this company is like catering towards like people in academia and students as well. So yeah. I've never heard of something like that before. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's, I think like this is, a, the Silicon Valley is a special place. I feel like there is, I, okay. So I think the reason why it was easy also to move into industries because here there is actually no boundaries between industry and academia. Also companies that are here, either they came from academia and the people who, who uh, build them are still in academia. So there is still this cooperation between the two. Uh, and also there is a lot of collaboration going on with universities and companies around the Bay Area. So yeah, that makes those like distinction and lines pretty blurry. So it's kind of easier to, you know, to move. It's like osmosis. And 
Do you have any other advice for students that are interested in making this transition? Maybe it's attending more of these workshops that kind of let you know what other people are doing. Is there anything else in particular you would like to tell people? Yeah, I think the the main advice is to get informed, to get informed, to go to uh, career fairs, to go to alumni events, to talk to people who are working at the company or people who worked up at the company. And something that I also did from with my company is that I went to their open houses and they show you the labs, they show you not all the different projects they work on, but kind of like, you know, the big picture of like, what are the company goals? And there I kind of learned that, you know, by, by kind of doing all what I just mentioned, like, so talking to people, going to Carrefour, going to open houses, and also like just informing general about a place that you want to join. So basically I learned that Genentech is kind of a really good company. Everybody I talked to, and I talked to a bunch of people since 2000. 2019, everyone had just good things to say about Genentech. They love working at Genentech. Most of them left Genentech when they retired. So it's, yeah. And also they do amazing science. They're really focused on on helping patients. Uh, and yeah. yeah, so far it's going pretty well there. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so one of the other things that we wanted to highlight through the podcast was your involvement in science communication. Uh, specifically your involvement in the Black in Immunology initiative. So would you be able to explain a little bit more about what the goals of this initiative is and uh, what has your, been your experience as a co-organizer for yeah. this initiative? Yeah, so yeah, Black in Reno actually were uh, started during the summer 2020. And the goal was to create, in the same line of all the Black in Acts events, to create this week where we amplify voices of uh, Black scientists in immunology. I don't know if you guys heard about the Black in Neuro, Black in Cancer, Black in, da in Data that, you know, uh, try to get Black scientists together and to uh, showcase their work. Uh, so we did the same thing with the, uh, the immunologists and it was pretty nice. I worked with people kind of all over the world and we came, we came together from different universities. It was black scientists and allies to put together these events and to invite uh, black scientists to showcase their work. And right now, actually, we turned into uh, a nonprofit where we carry on like trying to amplify black voices uh, in terms of their work into the immunology field. So, yeah, it was it was a. It's a great experience, you know, meeting every week and putting like things together. And also yeah, it sounds to, like awesome. Yeah, I also I also got to meet a lot of new scientists and you know increase my network. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome initiative. And I was gonna ask if someone was interested in helping out or being involved. Um, now that it's a nonprofit, do you, where can they find more information about it? So we have a webpage, blackinimuno.org. So all the information is out there. And I think there is like a form that people can fill if they want to give a hand. I think there will be a lot of events coming up in terms of just, you know, making sure that we can give info to new trainees and we can connect trainees and mentors. We also are creating a, a database right now for Black scientists to kind of come and showcase their skills and, and subscribe to it. So the website will be the best way, the, the best place to go and get all the information. So blackinimino.org. Did have one more question. In mm -hmm. terms of your position at Genentech, are you um, managing your own group there? Uh, so not yet, but I'm managing my own project. 
but like the goal, I guess, is to work up to going and, you know, maybe getting my own group at one point. Maybe it's going to be in 20 years. I don't know. Um, but okay. I like managing my own project. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Um, and we just have one more question that we do ask every single guest. Okay. And that is, if you were to tell yourself something back before you started research, before your master's, what would you tell yourself looking back now? Is there something you would tell yourself? Yeah, so I think just I need to accept when my plan doesn't go as planned. Um, when I started university, I had this, you know, I had this plan laid out literally and I had like a list and everything. It it was pretty uh, awkward. And I think at first when plans started to change, so when, for instance, the med school and I went to doing like uh, pure science, at first I didn't really accept it that, you know, I won't be a physician. And it was really hard the first, I would say, year until actually that seminar, uh, that uh, lecture was Catherine Friedman, where she was uh, explaining the immune system, you know, and I was like, wow, I think I found my way. So, yeah, I think I should I should have been more open to change despite having, you know, I did plan and it didn't work out. Uh, but I think at the end it worked out. You know, my mom always said that when a door closes, there is a window opening somewhere in the room. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, my younger self should accept change. Because I was actually earlier on your question, I was saying how people should plan and, you know, they should have a goal and everything. I think my goal is to do good science. And, you know, I think I'm where I was supposed to be. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, research trajectory and all your experience with us. I think people are going to find it super helpful. Oh, thank, thank you very you. much for having me. <laughs> that was really fun. Welcome back, everyone. So we first want to thank you for taking the time to make it to the end of the episode. We would also like to thank Berenice for really taking the time to talk to us. This was such an amazing episode, and we learned so much from her. It was really interesting to know about her path through academia and really her transition into industry research. So if you haven't done so already, we'd really like to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Immuno and Beyond. Also, you can follow the McMaster Immunology Research Center on Twitter to keep up with any of the news and new interesting research coming out from the center. Thanks again and see you soon. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.